Hello and welcome to another episode of Professors at Work, a weekly program at AUB, the American University of Beirut, where we talk with professors and scholars about their research, what they're finding, and what it means for the rest of us. I'm really pleased to have uh, today Dr. Ali Ahmed. Ali Ahmed is a uh, leading expert on uh, nuclear issues and energy policy around the Middle East with a distinguished background from Cambridge University. Then he was at uh, Princeton for many years. Then he came to AUB, where he headed the Energy Policy and Security Program at the Issam Fadis Institute. And now he's on his way also to be a research scholar at the Harvard Kennedy School, while continuing to be a senior fellow at the Issam Fadis Institute. And I've worked with Ali for some years, and I'm really pleased uh, to have him. Thank you for being with us, Ali. Thank you very much, Rami, for having me on your podcast. You bet. Uh, so t uh, tell us uh, quickly uh, your journey uh, from, you graduated from Lebanese University, then Cambridge PhD, then you went to Princeton, then back to Beirut, and now you're going to, to Lebanon, AUB, and now you're going to uh, Harvard. Your trajectory um, in your research interests over the years, where has it taken you and where are you now in your research? Yes, actually, this is, a, this is a question that I've been recently thinking about because, uh, as you probably know, I've been working with uh, the physics department at AUB on the physics and public policy initiative, which essentially, you know, invites physicists uh, or people who use physics or their science background to, to make a shift to public policy. And this somehow also connects to my own personal uh, trajectory and story, as you have highlighted. For me... I mean, clearly, my first love uh, was physics, and uh, you know, ever since I was uh, I was aware of uh, the importance of science, I, I fell in love with physics because you know, it, I think it's a it's a science that can really explains a lot about things we don't know about the universe, from the smallest uh, particles to the largest galaxies. Um, also, you know, um, perhaps uh, as a, as a consequence of me growing up as an only child. I was always interested in people as well. I was always interested in, in, in society. And, you know, if you are interested in people, you also automatically develop an interest in politics and policy and, and social issues. So as, as my career in physics uh, developed, uh, my interest for using science and physics to inform public policy has, on, has also grown uh, until, you know, I had a, a massive opportunity to join uh, Princeton University, as you have mentioned, Rami. And I think that was kind of the, uh, that was a, um, an important moment in my career because I went to Princeton as a scientist and I left Princeton as a scientist, but with tools and skills uh, to interact and inform the policy world. And your focus uh, then and today remains heavily on nuclear issues. Um, by and large, yes. I think um, nuclear remains an important part of my research portfolio, but also um, I have used the skills that I have gathered over the years uh, to also look at broader issues such as the intersection between energy and development because I mean, nuclear is only one source of energy. We have other sources as well. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, you have, you know, energy is so important uh, to different countries for different reasons. For example, you have countries that do not have electricity and therefore electrification becomes a real issue, such as, for example, you know, such as Lebanon, which is the country yes. both you and I are aware of the situation. Yes. 
But also you have countries that are really economically growing so fast and they want energy resources and they want to diversify their energy uh, um, uh, uh, sources because they don't want to be dependent on a single source of energy. So in that regard, you cannot really look at nuclear in a vacuum. Nuclear is part of a wider energy system and that's basically where my research is heading these days. Okay. Um, you were involved um, um, uh, somehow uh, tangentially or uh, indirectly uh, with the Iran nuclear negotiations with the world a few years ago. Uh, tell us a little bit about that and, and what, what was the main lesson that you draw, you, you've drawn from that experience about negotiating on nuclear-related issues? Yeah, I think when I was referring earlier to my good fortune of joining Princeton at the right time, I was perhaps, uh, I was specifically uh, uh, hinting at, at this involvement mm -hmm. for the Iran nuclear deal because the moment I arrived at Princeton, it was the moment where um, a lot of uh, scientific expertise uh, were drawn to, to inform the, the policy debate about some of the technical challenges uh, with the Iran deal. And I think, you know, right. the Iran nuclear program had two technical issues that needed to be resolved in order for a peace deal or in order for an agreement to be reached. The first one is um, the international community wanted to, uh, uh, to, re to be reassured that Iran's uranium enrichment program is used for peaceful purposes. Mm -hmm. And second, um, Iran uh, has developed a heavy water reactor and uh, heavy water reactors usually have been used in the past by countries like India or Pakistan to produce plutonium, which also could be used to make uh, nuclear weapons. So the second technical challenge is how can we really work around uh, redesigning the uh, Iraq reactor in Iran uh, and make it use less plutonium. And that was precisely the project I joined. And I think my, my involvement was really um, uh, uh, led or uh, guided by one of my uh, great mentors, uh, Professor Frank von Heppel, who is not mm -hmm. only my personal mentor, but he has been a mentor for hundreds of, of scientists. And Frank, you know, was, was really the guiding force behind the the whole operation at Princeton at the time uh, to, mm -hmm. to, 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 to inform this, uh, the situation with Iran. And now uh, you've uh, progressed in your career and when you came to AUB at the Aysan Fattis Institute, you headed, uh, you started and uh, directed the, the program on energy policy uh, and security and now you're mentoring um, uh, a lot of younger scholars coming, uh, coming along. What are the focal points of your research interests mm -hmm. and, and policy interests in uh, Middle Eastern uh, energy and security issues as they come together. Right. I mean, first, perhaps we should tell our listeners that I, am, I was back at AUB thanks to you, Rami, because uh, <laughs> you have been a great uh, link and you have introduced me to AUB. And uh, from the moment we met, it goes without saying that you made me fall in love with AUB and uh, the institution and the people, and uh, it was a great pleasure for me to be back in Lebanon. And clearly, I mean, I realized how special AUB is and how special oh, yeah. it was. Uh, so uh, that journey has been incredibly important. And I, I think it's important, Rami, because I don't think of AUB as a Lebanese institution. Mm -hmm. I mean, AUB is a, is a regional institution. It's an ambassador of the region. 
usually we have students and faculty from all over the world, but also specifically we have students and faculty from the region, right? Mm -hmm. So um, for me, you know, going to the U.S. and working at top universities and uh, realizing how important science and how important technical expertise in informing public policy, I really realized that the region is in, in need of such uh, efforts. And I remember our first conversations and I was really hooked by the fact that there's an opportunity to go back to AUB and to try to uh, uh, to make a difference. And that was the case. And uh, I spent an amazing four or five years at AUB where, as you, as you said, uh, uh, we developed this energy policy and security program, which focused not only on the uh, development of nuclear energy in the region, but also it also looked at uh, 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 the prospects of uh, renewable energy for Lebanon and for the region. It, it has hosted uh, a few policy dialogues to talk about controversial issues such as, you know, policy reforms and uh, public acceptance of nuclear energy. So all in all, I think the journey has been really special. Well, it's been great uh, having you at AUB. And, and of course, we're still uh, uh, linked. Both you and I are senior fellows at the Hassan Faris Institute, so we will keep working together. Uh, but when you look at the energy and policy and security um, spheres in the Middle East today, are there one or two things that really worry you? And are there one or two things that give you a lot of hope? Right. Um, I think this is a great question. Uh, clearly, the reason, and I, the, the, the reason why I like this question, Rami, because it, it really highlights both the, uh, the positive aspect and the negative aspect. So uh, on the positive side, the region uh, has seen some sort of a revolution in, in the energy sphere, um, perhaps driven by the realization that the the, the, the current model of using fossil fuels um, for, for power consumption is unsustainable. Unsustainable for uh, economic reasons, but also unsustainable for environmental reasons. So, yes. for example, you've seen countries, and by the way, I'm not only referring to uh, oil producing or rich countries such as uh, uh, the Gulf Cooperation Council uh, mm -hmm. countries, but also countries like Egypt or Jordan, which right. they have their own economic challenges, yet they managed to to make some uh, important progress in terms of deploying renewable energy. And I think there has been, uh, it's, it's, it was good to, to record or to document some of this progress. And for example, one of the projects I'm working on right now at the Assam Paris Institute is to uh, try to document and try to look at these early um, projects of renewable energy in the region and try to uh, uh, look at the lessons learned from these uh, projects and try to pass or convey those lessons to new newcomer countries that are also interested in, in, deploy in deploying renewable energy, particularly Lebanon. But also you have countries like Syria or Iraq, which have been under conflict for so many years, and you hope that one day reconstruction would begin then these lessons would be extremely valuable for those countries in order to start a new page of, of peace and development and hopefully more sustainable energy future. Now, um, on, the, on the negative side, I think we, we see, uh, and especially in the policy sphere, we still see some sort of ad hoc policies when it comes to uh, approaching energy, 
uh, I think this is mainly related to uh, political economy uh, uh, complexities in the region. I mean, th this is again like, uh, I mean, political economy is the elephant in the room when it, when it comes to discussing important policy decisions. Uh, mm -hmm. Take financial aspects of energy systems, yet there has been uh, very little progress on removing energy subsidies. Mm -hmm. And I think this lack of progress is, uh, you, the lazy argument for it is, you know, the complexities of uh, political economy, which of course uh, we acknowledge, and this is what, where I started my talk, but mm -hmm. at the same time, governments have a lot of tools in their hands to actually make a progress. I mean, these tools uh, include more uh, genuine citizen engagement, try to uh, make the case for removal of subsidies more transparent and more clear and try to build trust where their citizens, where they, where they, the citizens know that although they might be asked to pay more for electricity, they will get actually better service and they will get better returns and also give assurances that the most vulnerable groups and those who cannot afford uh, they will be protected under under a systematic uh, approach. So this mm -hmm. is like I think a, a really important issue, and I, I think um, because uh, when we talk about energy policy in the region, Rami, uh, we often talk about energy supply, but we dismiss a, a very important uh, part of the discussion, which is the demand side. I think yes, um, we, we have a great potential to reduce demand. We have a great potential to. Um, to, to uh, conserve the use of energy. And I think that's why removal of subsidies and that's why uh, demand management, si demand side uh, interventions or policies can actually be more effective than just adding one or two extra power plants. Right. Um, the, um, the recent uh, research that I've done all over the region, um, interviewing people and looking at projects and stuff, shows that there's an incredible uh, interlocking of disciplines. So in your work on energy, I'm sure you're also talking to people who are dealing with food issues, water issues, urbanism, transport, etc., etc. How how do you deal with this inter-sectoral inter um, reality that uh, defines not just your field, but almost any field that people look at? Um, again, this is a great observation, and indeed, I think it would be um, a, a missed opportunity if we don't talk about energy uh, outside the context of its relationship with other fields. And you have mentioned, like, the food or water, but I mean, clearly, the energy-food-water nexus um, is, is a pressing issue uh, mm -hmm. because we have, in, in the Middle East, we have one of the, or some of the, highly stressed water countries in the world. Mm -hmm. um, we, we have a, a strong uh, evidence that with the uh, upcoming effects of climate change, the region will be subjected to more uh, food, food uh, security shocks. So in this regard, um, energy has to be, uh, energy policy has to be thought of as part of a broader perspective. And I think to answer your question, um, the, the mainstreaming of these policies has to be done on an inter interdisciplinary level, which is, uh, and this is something we have seen, is that uh, usually uh, ministries in the region, they are very focused or they are very 
well, they are very focused on their uh, on their topic, and there is uh, little interactions with other ministries and other departments. Uh, right. But one way one way to overcome this is essentially uh, the creation of uh, independent centers that could be that could play an important role in thinking all uh, of all these issues together. Um, government uh, can also uh, uh, encourage such inter interministerial dialogues as well. Um, I think the research community can, can also and, and the universities can also play a role. And uh, as mm -hmm. you know, you know our colleagues at uh, the Assam Ferris Institute have thought about these topics for for many years as well. And IFI has hosted a number of uh, mm -hmm. policy dialogues to promote uh, the interdisciplinary thinking of, of these issues. Well, we see this uh, all over the region as well. Uh, think tanks, universities, civil society groups doing this, doing the work that should normally be done by good governments. But you talked there earlier about the need to engage citizens uh, but, uh, to, to do better policymaking. And, and this raises the um, the big issue, which is that the the Middle East is the only region in the world that is totally and chronically non-democratic, with one or two small exceptions like Tunisia. Um, and even democratic countries that were uh, relatively impressive uh, are sliding back. Uh, so uh, how do you deal with the reality that these real existential issues in many cases, especially with climate change impacts you mentioned and water shortages, how, these existential issues need a level of serious responsible decision-making that just doesn't seem to exist across the Middle East, in, in my view. How do you see it? Well, I think, of course, I mean, clearly uh, the, the level of citizen engagement, and this has been shown globally, the more citizens are engaged, uh, not only in the environment, but all the policy decisions that impact their lives, uh, the more the government would be willing to, to take seriously these issues. Um, mm -hmm. Take, for example, uh, the decision in Germany post Fukushima to suspend or to phase out nuclear energy in response to Fukushima. This would mm -hmm. not have happened in Germany, given their reliance at the time on nuclear energy without some serious public pressure and a political pressure from the Green Party, right? So right. Uh, clearly, we, we, we like such dynamics in the Middle East. Uh, but having said that, I wouldn't, for me, I think um, uh, my only issue with your question, Rami, I think it's perhaps posed as black and white and, and perhaps, mm -hmm. and I think you can make progress even in less uh, democratic contexts. And I think, mm -hmm. uh, um, again, like, uh, uh, clearly, this uh, progress may not be uh, the full potential that we can reach, but progress can be made. Uh, but but I, I think, again, the, the progress has to be done uh, as part of a, a clear vision of uh, what is the social return of, 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 the, of the interventions that are being proposed and mm -hmm. to communicate those social returns to to the public and make the public fully understanding uh, the implications of going into one direction or the other. Well, I'm sure that you and many of your colleagues around the region are going to keep doing this. We've almost run out of time. Uh, we have time for one more uh, question, which is I'd like to ask you, what are you looking at next? What's your, your priority in the coming year or two when you address these issues across the Middle East? <laughs> 
So we talked about energy, we talked about climate change. Uh, my current, and perhaps will, this will be my future uh, research for the next two, three years, is I'm looking at how uh, climate change impacts energy sources. So for a long time, we have known how energy impacts climate change, uh, specifically in terms of emissions, right? Mm -hmm. But there has been much, much less uh, attention to the impact of climate change itself, such, you mm -hmm. know, particularly in the in the in terms of uh, extreme weather events such as droughts, mm -hmm. heat waves, uh, storms. Uh, how yeah. how these extreme weather events impact energy systems? Uh, mm -hmm. How how they impact energy resilience? Because now you know uh, energy security uh, since the 70s, since the Arab oil embargo in the 70s, has been a buzzword in the energy policy circles. The new buzzword is energy resilience. And, you know, I think what happened in Texas a couple of months ago, um, when you have this massive, uh, a freeze storm, which left millions of people without electricity, it was really a strong reminder that an energy system, even in developed country, can be, uh, brought to a complete stop. Uh, right. and cutting off millions of people uh, uh, of electricity, but this can only can, but this can be done not only by natural disasters or climate effects. It can be also done by uh, uh, cyber attacks or you know terrorist attacks right. on, on critical energy infrastructure. So this is essentially my my research is try to understand and try to come up with policy recommendations of how. Uh, we can make energy systems or design energy systems so they become more energy resilient. Wow. Well, it's good that people like you are working on this, and we look forward to hearing more from you uh, in, the, in the future. My guest has been uh, Dr. Ali Ahmed, uh, who is a senior fellow at the Hassan Faris Institute at AUB and also a research scholar at the Harvard Kennedy School. Ali, thank you for being with us. Thank you very much, Shami. And thanks to our audience for joining us. This is Professors at Work, a weekly podcast on AUB professors and researchers looking at uh, the work they're doing and what they're finding and what it means for the rest of us. I'm Rami Khoury, your host. Please join me again next week at the same time. Bye for now. <laughs>